Thank you, Alan. Didn't know that when you go to a Bible college anymore, you walk away with a uh, culinary degree as well, did you? I think that's a new prerequisite, and, and I may have to go back to school. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you, you open them up. Uh, if you don't have one, there's one probably in one of the chairs in front of you down below. But uh, we're going to be digging into Romans chapter 13 this morning, uh, the first seven verses uh, within that, that chapter. There was a, a government surveyor who was sent out one day to go survey some area around a, a, a county uh, location out in the rural community. And so he brought with him all of his equipment to, uh, to, to do the survey. So he knocked on this farmhouse door, and, and the farmer an answered, and he asked if he could have permission to go in the field so that he could take his equipment out there and begin his survey. <laughs> the farmer, like most people, doesn't like government officials. All right, it just, this wasn't going to happen. And he really did not like the fact that this gentleman was coming here asking to get out into his fields with his equipment, and he was no way going to let him do that. He thought maybe the government was going to try and do some kind of project where they were going to take his land eventually. And so he told him, I will not going to give you permission to go out into my field, into my land. He says, that's mine. You can't go there. So the surveyor, he presented him with a letter that said, here is the authority that the federal government and the state has given me to go out into any place that I want land to survey. We have to do this. So begrudgingly, the farmer took him out, opened up the gate, and he let him go out into his field. Well, this man was setting up all of his equipment there. The farmer continued to walk across the field, and he opened up another gate, letting in his bull. <laughs> the bull, noticing the gentleman in his field, began to charge, right? And so seeing that bull, he dropped all of his survey equipment and began to run. Well, the farmer yelled out to him, show him your paper. <laughs> Let him know who's in charge, who's got the authority here, right? So, I, I, you know, I've been there, right? You've been there. We don't like things that are put upon us when we don't want it to happen. And, and I didn't tell you that story just to get a laugh. Well, maybe I did. But I want you to consider first off this morning, what is your attitude about government. Okay, sermon's over. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we all have a lot of the farmer in us, don't we? If we had a bull, we would let him loose, right? That's just where, who we are. We don't like paying our taxes. We, we like to resist a government that wants to control us and, and, and tell us what we were, are supposed to do and, and, and claim that they've got authority over us. But you see, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter to Rome, who sits in the capital of the entire world at that time, it seems like, he's going to communicate with people that they have a responsibility toward their government. And he describes God he describes the God that, that, that how we as Christians and Christ followers are supposed to have this attitude towards those in authority over us and how we're to interact with them. And instead of rebelling and resisting, we are supposed to obey and submit to our governing authorities. So I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit work on us this morning as we read this text. And he softens us to the words that Paul is about to speak to us about our attitudes and our actions towards our government. 
The good news from God is that we have this freedom that has been given to us because wherever the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. Yet in the midst of all our freedom, we are then motivated by that same Spirit to submit to governing authorities. The origin of Uncle Sam came about, I believe, around 1812. Samuel Wilson was a, a meat packer, and he provided meat for the U.S. military. All right, And as he would package the meat, it would be stamped U.S., Someone then began to wonder, what does U.S. stand for? Another fellow said, well, that stands for Uncle Sam. All right. And as time went by, Uncle Sam eventually became the terminology that is used when we talk about government, Uncle Sam. Now, as we look at our passage of Scripture this morning, I think the main point that we're going to discover is that we are supposed to be conscientious citizens in any government that we belong under. And so Paul is going to give us some valuable information about the government's responsibility towards citizens as well as what is our responsibility towards our government. The passage here in Romans 13 presents, presents probably one of the clearest biblical teachings that we're going to find in the Scripture concerning God and the origin of government that it is created by Him with His intended purposes for it. So, We've gone through Romans chapters 1 through 11, and we discover that Paul talks about this gospel of grace. And in Romans 12, he tells us how we should live because of that gospel of grace. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he makes this statement about how we should live. That we, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, submission to authority is simply just one aspect of what God wants in us, and that's a part of his will for us. We're told to submit in the home. We're told to submit at church. We're told to submit uh, in, in a variety of other places. Maybe in your job you have somebody over you. But he also says we are supposed to submit to our government. God's will for Christians includes not just specific Christian duties, which we've talked about just recently in some of the sermons, how we should live, but also... It, it speaks to us about the laws of the Creator that apply to all human beings. Because we are His creatures, there has to be a sense of order that is displayed. Now, last week we talked about evil. And when evil arrives, how do we respond? Now we're talking about government. I don't know if those two go hand in hand, right? But here we, here we move forward. And you see, we learned that the Lord deals with evil in two ways. He either deals with it with grace or with punishment. Now there are two entities that he has established to present those facets of God's dealing with evil. He's created the church in which the grace of God is expressed. And he's created government in which the punishment of God is also expressed. 
And as individual Christians and as a church, we need to live out the instructions that God has given to us in his word. And so we've got to be clear about this. It's okay to want justice to be done by the government. And, And we notice that some people who do evil, they respond well when adverse direction comes upon them and they 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 they're punished for their deeds and they say i'm not going to do that again but we have others that when they are confronted with their evil doing and punishment comes as a result of that they bristle up and they fight and they do more so sometimes there needs to be something that is bigger and that is stronger to them to create a restraint from their willingness to be so evil in life and without any kind of fear or any kind of punishment people will go on doing things that are disastrous to society now while we learned last week that we're not called to take revenge that God is the one who takes revenge now he tells us one of those ways in which he does that through government God uses government to promote his punishment at times when those who do things that are wrong. Now before we talk about the responsibility of government towards citizens or before looking at the responsibility that we as citizens have toward our government, let's talk about how God is sovereign over all government. First of all, Paul teaches us that God is sovereign over government. He says here in chapter 13 verses 1 and 2, He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, That doesn't mean that God appointed people like Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein or Hitler or or the others like Stalin and that he used them as puppets on a string to accomplish his will. He, He did not set people in place to do that. But what it does mean is that God has established the idea of the principle of government. He's established that there is to be a a set order of rule within society, and government is the fashion in which he governs and rules over people. And so God can accomplish his work and his will through all kinds of governments, not just the American government. He can work in the midst of a dictator. He can work in the midst of all things. In America, however, we think that a republic based on democracy is the best form of government. And we realize this has worked for us for 247 years, so this has to be good. But there are other governments as well that God has instituted and he has used through the years. All right. Now, if you put five people on an island and they live within some kind of a federal or democracy... And three of those people are men, and two of those people are women, and and they take a vote, and the three men say the women are going to be the slaves. That's democracy. Probably at its worst, but that's democracy. Democracy has a a capability of becoming even an evil form of government if the people in that democracy are evil themselves. All right? 
That gives me some concern about America. At one time, theocracy, that is where God controls things, theocracy was the government of the people of Israel. But they looked around and they said, but they got a king. Why don't we have a king? Hey, they have a king. When can we get a king? And God says, I'm your king. What do you mean? We want to be like all the other nations. And so God gave them a king, and they had multiple kings, and the people decided, we don't like this. These kings are corrupted. All right? The point is, whatever form of government, whether it be a theocracy, a democracy, a monarchy, whether they be pagan or godly, all governments, God is able to work in them and through them to finalize his will and his purposes. It does not mean that the government, and only one specific government, is godly. Because no government is godly because it has people in it that are operating it. But order and structure, those are godly. So what is the responsibility of government towards its citizens? Well, I believe first off that government is designed to uphold moral laws so that people don't do things against one another that would hinder them in life. And so a government upholds a a law of morality, so to speak. And so the government does this in four ways. Maybe one of the most wonderful ways is that they praise people for being good. So we see that here in verse 3 of chapter 13. Let's look at that. For rulers, they're not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. So governments are set up to reward the law-abiding citizen, but they're also set up to stop evil, all right? And they do that by fear of punishment. And so we read that in verse 4, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger of carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Also, he is to, the government is to apply God's wrath and vengeance to all these evildoers. Now, three times this aspect of government in this verse is called God's servant. All right? So whoever's working for the government, they are a servant of God. Now, now we use the term minister of justice, minister of defense, minister of finance. That word minister basically means servant. We'll often call them, they are public servants, right? They work for us. No, they actually work for God, for us. And and this is God's design here, that they are His servants to carry out what He desires for us. So, the question I ask, is it okay then for a Christian to be involved in government? Yes. Matter of fact, they probably should be Christians because this is God's institution and those who are of God, the people who want to follow faithfully to Him, those are the ones who should be in those positions of government. So who wants to run for office this year? I've got one hand. All right. Well, how do you think about it? 
We're called to be servants of one another. We're called to humble ourselves and, and care for the needs of others. That rolls into the aspect of how we treat people underneath the governmental structure as well. More precisely, what does it mean for government to do good? See, if the government is supposed to serve people, the government is to be the place where we, we pool all of our resources together so that we can accomplish things that we could not do on our own. The government then provides those resources and those services that we need. I cannot pave a highway by myself and make my roadway smooth. That would be just ridiculous. I, there's no way I could do that. So the government gathers all of our resources in which we pay taxes for, and they provide those things to make life a little bit more convenient for us. They provide for us with, with the ability to, to build us parks and, and, and playgrounds and, and provide the services that we cannot provide on our own. And that is the purpose of government, to do good by what God has said. Now, Paul tells the young minister Timothy in his letter to him in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says, because of all that's going on with government, we have a response that we have to provide. And so this is what he says. First of all, then I, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For all people. Well, what do you mean, all people? Well, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I mean, this is good, he says, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we are supposed to pray that somehow that God provides a life of peace and quiet for us. That's what he's telling us in verse 2. That we may pursue godliness and dignity. But then he also says that we may be free to share the gospel of grace of Jesus. So as we pray for our nation, we pray for them to be able to provide peace for us and quiet, to provide a place where we can become godly and, and have dignity in life, and a place where we as well can then share the good news of Jesus with anybody. Now let me summarize this God-ordained purpose of government in three simple words. Protecting, preventing, and punishing. Protecting, the government is to be protecting the rights of all of its citizens. The rights involved in living a peaceful and a quiet life, as we've been praying for. The government is also to prevent evildoers from violating other citizens' rights. Well, how do they do that? By what means? Punishing. All right, so punishing those who are guilty of violating other citizens' rights. But if you boil it all down to just one word, we discover that word is justice. That's what government is supposed to bring out for us. It's supposed to bring justice and seeing that people get what they deserve. I mean, but yet, that is almost the very opposite of what God is expressing to us here in Romans, that what we get is grace rather than justice. And he justifies us, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And somebody's going to take the punishment that we deserve and that's his son. 
I mean, Chad eloquently brought that up to us earlier when we were taking uh, communion. He, he took my place. He took my punishment. He took the justice being served on me upon his back. And therefore, as Scripture says, by his stripes, I'm healed. Our passage also says that if we really want to be free from fear, then we need to obey the laws of the land. But if we're not obedient, then we ought to be afraid. And this is his wording, not mine. Go back to what he said there in verse 4. He said, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger of carries out God's wrath on all the wrongdoer. All right? So you know, we know that's true. We observe it every time we're driving in our car and we see those lights that come on behind us, right? And, and we, the first thing that you probably do, just like me, is you look down to your speedometer. Right? I'm doing the speed limit. And then you begin to wonder, do I have a taillight out? Is the registration on my, on my license, do, am I up to date with my insurance? Have I done something wrong? You know, did, I, did I turn when I shouldn't turn? I mean, we, we begin to put all these things in our mind and we go, uh, everything is okay, so what's, what's happening? Why is it that we're afraid when those lights come on? Because we know that if I get pulled over, there is the potential that I'm going to get a ticket and that I'm going to have to pay a fine, that I may be arrested. I mean, so we start going all these things because we know that within that car that those beautiful lights are shining on, there is the man, not necessarily with a sword, but with the weapon to ensure that justice is carried out. And so fear becomes a part of our response. You see, and it's the same in every society. Government is there to restrain evil. And our Constitution put it this way, to ensure domestic tranquility. We got peace. They are set up to ensure that everything is tranquil and peaceful. Now, the main reason that our founding fathers of this nation broke away from England was that the government of England was not looking out to the rights of the citizens in the colonies. So the leaders of the colonies, they tried multiple times and in various ways to, to communicate with those back in authority in England to look at what's going on in, in their lives there. And, and, and they, but yet the king refused to see things their way, and so eventually they decided to break away from their government. The Declaration of Independence says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, many may not know it, but the, at the end of the Revolutionary War, the first national government that was formed here on this continent was a, a government created by what they call Articles of Confederacy. All right? And the Articles of Confederation, they, they, they t were a little bit weak in what they were presenting. Now, now, people wanted no taxation without representation. That was part of the revolution. 
But what it came down to is people didn't want any taxation at all. <laughs> you know, they just, just leave us alone. And so on March 4th of 1789, the articles were replaced with a U.S. Constitution. And this new Constitution provided a much stronger national government with, with a president with a, a, and, and a court system and a legislative, legislative body that would then also have the power to tax the people, not absorbently, but needfully. We ask ourselves, where did our founding fathers get such principles to make the change this way? Well, I think it comes from passages like this here in Romans chapter 13. They understood that government is an establishment by God. So why did they make the changes to have our U.S. Constitution the way it is written today? Well, they wanted to have a better government than anything else that had been out there before. And so they sought to find a way to really make a very strong, healthy government that would be sustainable through generations. And so they focused on this. Listen to the words from the preamble of the Constitution of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, in order to establish justice, in order to ensure domestic tranquility, in order to provide for the common defense, in order to promote the general welfare, and in order to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, what do they do? We do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. You see, our Constitution was established upon what we classify as Judeo-Christian beliefs or standards. The law of God and the Word of God was used as the primary guideline for writing our Constitution. Do you know that when this nation began, before it began, the settlers came over from Europe and they settled in a little community called Jamestown. One of the first things that they did in that community was they built a church building in the center of their community. And life revolved around faith and around God and the things that they did. The earliest colleges in America, Yale and Harvard, and we still hold these to be very prestigious colleges in America, but the reason they were established was to train preachers to preach the gospel message in this new world as people were coming in from all over the world to America. President John Quincy Adams, who was a part of all of this development of our Constitution and the founding of our nation, he made this statement. The highest glory of the American Revolution, did you catch this? The highest glory of the American Revolution was that it connected the principles of what? Christianity with the principles of what? Government. The best thing that we did within this revolution is we took the principles of godliness and through Christianity and we united those principles with the principles of how we should govern ourselves. All right? 
You can go on to a lot of the different buildings in Washington, D.C. As they were erected, you'll discover that throughout the facade and, and throughout inside on the walls, there are scriptures that have been engraved in stone. The founding was very much of a godliness. And if you take your money out of your pocket and you begin to look at them, it doesn't matter whether it's a coin or whether it's a bill, it says on those things, in God we trust. Do you know that Congress still opens its sessions with prayer? Beseeching that this God of creation, whom we are all endowed equally by, would give them wisdom as they're making laws today. Now whether or not they believe it or not, it's still a part of the process of our government. Thomas Jefferson said, he said this, Can the liberties, the freedoms... Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure if we have removed their only firm basis? So what is that only firm basis that we should not remove? What's he say? It's a conviction in the minds of men that these liberties are a gift from God. Now a lot of people use Romans chapter 13 to say that, that God personally selects and puts these individual people in office. All right? That every bloodthirsty tyrant, every anti-Christian regime, every crooked politician, and every immoral and bribe-taking uh, official is appointed to their position by God. I don't think that's what the Bible is telling us. He doesn't appoint men necessarily to those positions. He appoints the position. He's established the form of principle of government. We're the ones who destroy ourselves by putting the wrong guy in. That's who we do these things to. What we read in Romans is about how government is a realm of authority which God has established. And he tells us if we rebel against the establishment of authority, then we've got problems. And we're going to have to deal with God's wrath primarily dealt with through the government. You see, we know that the Lord gives us, and he takes away as well, when it comes to rulers and governments. And, and there will be never be a time in this world in which there will be no government. Even when we get to heaven, there's a government. God is the one who's in charge. He's the king on the throne. And it's his way, and he has all authority. So then... Let's move on. What is the responsibility then of citizens toward their government? Well, first off, I think we're supposed to submit to the authority of civil rule by obeying the laws and the regulations that are imposed upon us by the interest of, of, the interest of justice. So we see there in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All right? It applies to every person, he says. Every person. Verse 5, he tells us, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of what? Conscience. It is our moral obligation, and it's necessary that we submit ourselves to an authority which is government. So government exists by God's design for our benefit. Verse 3 says that in submission we receive God's approval. 
but I also agree that avoiding punishment isn't bad either. Um, <clears throat> but it's for the process of looking to God and approval of what he looks at us. The ultimate reason that we should submit is this. He says, for the sake of conscience. Because it's the right thing to do. That's what it boils down to. It's the right thing to do to submit to yourself to that. Now, you have to understand when Paul is writing this, he's not writing this to, to people who are living in America under a U.S. Constitution that gives us all kinds of freedoms. All right? He's writing this to people who are living in Rome under a crazy emperor, a dictator. And they have to submit as well. And civil disobedience is... <coughs> Before I go there, let's jump back up to verse uh, to First Peter chapter two, verse thirteen through seventeen. Peter says that you are to be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to an emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but for living as servants of God. And then he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So then my question is this, is civil disobedience ever right? Can we rise up against our government and disobey them? We have to go into the book of Acts, chapter 5, and we find an answer to that very question in verse 29. All right? And we see that, that, yes, we can. Peter and the other apostles have been arrested, and they're being punished because they're preaching the gospel message, and they're told, don't do this anymore. And so listen to what their response is here in Acts 5, 29. We must obey God rather than men. You see... When obeying human law requires that you go against God's will for your life, it's time to accept the punishment the human law is going to dictate to you. We've got a few examples of how that works. In the book of Daniel, chapter 3, we read the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were commanded by their government officials, by their king, that nobody was supposed to do any other kind of prayer except taking this time over the next few days to pray to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Worship at his idol. At his, his idol. And, and whenever you heard the music going, it's time to, to stop and to pray to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused the law that had been set in place. So they now become lawbreakers. And as a result of that, their punishment was they were thrown into a fiery furnace to their death. They received the punishment for their disobedience willingly. But God saved them and vindicated them. You go down three more chapters into chapter 6 of the book of Daniel, you see Daniel himself. Another uh, law has been put in place that you do not pray to anybody but King Darius. Daniel wasn't going to do that. He continued to, as was his habit, daily pray to God. And the people who convinced Darius to make that a law did it as a trap for Daniel because they knew he wouldn't obey it. 
So he was arrested. He was found guilty of what he was committing a crime against that law. And he then was thrown into a den filled with lions so that he would be devoured. Punished for disobedience, willfully accepted his punishment. But God saved him and vindicated him. I think the same thing will be true for us if we willfully go against laws that are against godliness and if we accept the punishment that is due for breaking that specific law God will still save us and vindicate us and as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego said and even if he doesn't we're still not going to do it Paul is talking about an ideal situation here he doesn't get into many of the what-if circumstances that may require civil disobedience, all right? And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, Peter says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. All right? Then he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see, government can become corrupted. Just like any other institution, it can be. Because it's perverted when people who are perverted go into it. And they take their ideas of life and they institute those. But we need to respond with the same way that Peter and the other apostles did when they were faced with being lawbreakers. And they simply said, we must obey God rather than man. The second thing that citizens need to do for their government is we need to pay what is obligated. So we see that in Romans 13, verse 6. This is what he says. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So we are to pay taxes. We, we are here to see that the rationale for paying taxes is because God has appointed governing authorities to do the work that he has specified. They are his ministers, remember. They are his servants, and this is how they arrive at, one, making their own living, and two, providing for the needed resources that we have, we collectively pay the taxes that are there. Verse 17, he says, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. I mean, the command to pay, or some translations may use the word render, that's the same word that Jesus used back in Mark chapter 12, verse 17, when he was asked, well, do we pay taxes? Remember what his response was? He says, render to Caesar, or pay to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. So yes, we are to pay our taxes. And this command to pay taxes clearly shows that tax evasion, or tax fraud, is a sin. We've got to pay our taxes. And it's not because the government is trying to stiff us. Well, they may be. But we still have to pay what is due. Because that's godly. And if we pay an exorbitant amount of taxation, who are we really relying upon? The money in our pocket? Or on God to meet our needs? See, God is the supplier of all things in life that we need. And if we need to have tax money to pay the taxes, let's go fishing. Simply put, God will provide. 
And if it means from some way that you never thought possible, he still will provide. But you just have to be faithful in being obedient because that's what God calls us to do. You see, this command to pay taxes, we consider that we don't want to do that and it becomes disobedient to God. But you have to realize, when is he telling them to do this? When they're living under a pagan leadership of Rome. You talk about unfair? Go back and read some of your history books about that leadership of Rome and what they did to the people. Another thing that we need to do as citizens is we need to demonstrate respect and honor. Romans 13, 7, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So the actual wording here that he uses in verse 7 for respect, he's already used earlier in Romans 13, verse 3, when he talks about fear, all right? It's that, that sense where we are elicited with alarm because something is about to happen to us. But often the word means reverence or respect, and as he's using it here, because actually he's tying it in with this other word, honor, right? So it's, it's don't be afraid, but respect, where respect is due and honor where honor is due. But Paul says this is what we owe to our rulers, we owe this to them. Now, we might not appreciate a, a person's political leanings, whether they're right-winged or left-winged or moderate, whether they are uh, democratic or communistic or whatever. We may not particularly care for what their position is on certain things, but we owe that position of authority, honor, and respect. But I think that we live in a world that looks at our leaders and we condemn them and we criticize them because we make it personal. But God's not telling us that. Matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, he says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now that's hard to take, isn't it? Especially when we don't agree with somebody that's in a position of authority. As a matter of conscience, a Christian's behavior will never take anything away from the person who's called God's servant. So respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. The New Testament requires that we show such honor and respect to one another, to church leaders, to our husbands and our wives, and also especially to God. But here it particularly applies to all authority figures of government. So we shouldn't be chastising the individual in that position. You may not agree with them, but there's a respect that is due the position, whether they are a police officer pulling you over, or whether it's a president, or whether it's a congressman, whether it's a mayor, the position of government God has established and we owe that position our respect and our honor. It's an attitude of the heart. That's what respect is. And honor, then, is how we express for the good that they have done. And we show them that we're appreciative of all the things that they have done. Well, as we close, let's head back to that field uh, with our uh, surveyor and the, uh, uh, the farmer. Farmer. 
We can sympathize with that farmer who used the bull to chase off the surveyor. And the government can seem unfair and it can appear to be exploitive at times, right? But in these verses from Romans chapter 13, Paul brings our thinking about the government in line with what God's will is. He lets us see the governing authorities are being established by God and they are there to bring blessing to us. That encouragement leads us to meet our obligation to our government structure, whatever it may be. You see, there are Christians who are living not only in a federal democracy, but there are Christians who are living in a, a dictatorship such as North Korea, where there's a tyrant that rules. And yet, the same Romans 13 is applied to both governments. So we submit ourselves to governing authorities. Why? So the grace of God can be displayed through his people. Let's go back to Paul's letter to Timothy. We've already read it once in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our response should always be pray. And so Paul says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and, and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, the way that you communicate about our government may have a direct impact on the way that you communicate the grace of God and the gospel message of salvation to other people. Let your words always be seasoned with salt, no matter who you're talking about. Because God calls us to respect and honor. We are citizens of the kingdom of God first and foremost this nation in which we call ourselves citizens of that's a secondary thing primarily we belong to him and how we live as foreigners and aliens as strangers in this world impacts how we demonstrate the goodness and the love and the grace and the justice and the wrath of God as well. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Sometimes we don't like to, to hear things that we need to submit. Maybe we don't mind submitting to you, but it's that guy or it's that woman that's in authority and places of government around us that we just don't want to surrender our, our freedoms to. But Father, I pray that you allow us to carry with us your grace and how that is displayed in the way that we act around those who have authority over us because of the governmental structures we have. Father, may our citizenship of heaven 
be fully known, that we serve you first and foremost. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.